So I wonder if you've ever had uh, one of those moments or seasons of life when things were were good. Actually, things are were lining up better than you hoped or expected. You're living your best life. You're filled with gratitude and awe, and things are just uh, so good. And in those moments, you can't but help want to express gratitude somewhere to someone. In the Christian faith, we would refer to that as worship. Or, or maybe you've been in, or maybe you're even in a season in which things are, are just hard, like it's not good. Maybe you're experiencing a bit of vertigo of the soul, everything's upside down and spinning and things aren't lining up like you thought, you never thought you'd be in this place, and yet at the very same time, there was this desire to kind of yield and just tell God you trust him. That also is worship. Worship really is the expression of gratitude and reverence and trust. It's it's our response to who God is, not necessarily what life brings our way. Now, usually, and I think unfortunately, when we use the word worship, it's often in reference to the singing portion of a church service. We're going to have the worship time and the sermon time, and then there's going to be a closing song, and that's going to be our cue to get out of here, right? Which is unfortunate for some of us because there are some that just, you don't really like to sing. Now, I, I, I deeply love and appreciate what our worship team offers us every week, either here in the chapel, over in the chapel, or here. I, I, I really deeply believe the words of the songs that we sing, but I just don't personally connect with God all that deeply through music. This is not how I'm wired, and I'm okay with it. I mean, I, I, I've had people walk up to me over the years and say, Pastor Mike, wasn't that worship service amazing? Didn't you just feel God's presence? I guess. <laughs> I believe this words to the song. And then on top of that, in, in every church that I know, there are debates over what is true worship, what's not worship, what's just performance, and it goes on and on and on. I, I read a newspaper article this week, and the, the, the newspaper article was an objection, this is in a U.S. newspaper, to the new trends in church music. And the author writes this, there are several reasons for opposing new church music. Number one, it's too new. Number two, it's often worldly and even blasphemous. The new Christian music is not as pleasant as the more established style. Because there are so many songs, we can't learn them all. It puts too much emphasis on instrumental music rather than godly lyrics. This new music creates disturbances making people act indecently, and disorderly. The preceding generation got along without it. 
It's a money-making scheme, and some of these new music upstarts are lewd and loose. This article was written in the year 1723. (laughs) And it was written attacking Isaac Watts, who was the writer of hymns like When I Surveyed the Wondrous Cross, Joy to the World, and Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past. Maybe Solomon was right. There really isn't all that new under the sun. And so I think it's time to move beyond the music because worship is not a style. Worship is a matter of the heart. And we all worship. Every single one of us. And when we don't know what to worship, we make stuff up. There's a story in the book of Exodus. God has led his people out of out of captivity and slavery in Egypt. And they're in the desert, and Moses goes up onto the mountain, Mount Sinai, to receive the Ten Commandments from the Lord. He's up there 40 days in God's presence, and the people at the bottom that are waiting get anxious. They don't know what's happened to Moses. They don't know what's happened to their leader. And so they say to Aaron, the priest, Moses' right-hand man, Aaron, we don't know where Moses is. We don't know who to worship, so help us find a God to worship. And so Aaron says, well, give me all your gold and jewelry. And he melts it down and creates a golden calf. And they worship the golden calf and they're dancing around it. And there's just kind of debauchery and all kinds of stuff happening. And Moses comes down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments in his hand. And he sees it all and he gets so angry. He throws them on the ground. He's upset with Aaron. And Aaron says, I don't know what happened, Moses. The people wanted a God and they gave me their gold. And I put it in this pot and this, this calf just leapt out. We'll all worship something. Every fall, many of us are very demonstrative worshipers on Sunday afternoon. And I'm not talking about church. I'm usually a pretty reserved person, but when when the Bills got knocked out of the playoffs, my wife took a picture of me. (laughs) my, My wife unbeknownst to me and without my permission, films me <laughs> watching football. I, I, I just, I don't know. It brings out something in me. I just get angry. And... <laughs> this morning I want to turn to the story of a demonstrative worshiper who had one of those moments in which things were so good, things were going his way beyond expectation, and he was so full of awe and gratitude towards God, but he could not help but worship and express it and worship in a very, very demonstrative way, in a way that so much so was uncomfortable for some of those that were experiencing it. And this same person, just a little while later, again finds himself in the, the deepest of darkest places of despair. And even in that place of dark despair, he chooses to worship God from the heart. His name is King David, he is the king of the nation of Israel. In the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 6 in the Old Testament, David and his armies have defeated a nation called the Philistines, and he's run them out of Jerusalem. And so King David takes his rightful place as the king of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. 
He has the Ark of the Covenant brought into Jerusalem. Uh, behind me is an artist's rendition of the Ark of the Covenant, which was, uh, it, it was a wooden chest. Uh, God described the parameters for how it should be built. And in this wooden chest, which was overlaid with gold, it contained the Ten Commandments, the tablets of the law, Moses' staff, and some manna from their journeys in the wilderness. And the Ark of the Covenant served both practically and symbolically as a representation of God's presence on the earth to his people. If you've ever seen the classic film, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, it is a loose reference to this item here. So we come to 2 Samuel. King David has just defeated the Philistines. And I want to read 2 Samuel chapter 6 in its entirety so we have the full context of what's happening in this story. Verse 1, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Behalah in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is by name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. The Ark, they set the Ark on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. And David and all of Israel were celebrating with all of their might. You could also put the word worship in there. Worshiping with all their might before the Lord with castanets and harps and timbrels and, and halirs and sistrums and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God, which... Seems a bit harsh to me. God is just trying to keep you from falling off the cart, and he's dead. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went up to bring the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Now keep in mind the way this reads is every six steps that the ark takes as it's carried, he offers fattened calf and a bull, which is a lot of livestock. He's worshiping, wearing a linen ephod, and David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent of David that he had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he'd finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person and the whole crowd of the Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned to his home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, in her most sarcastic voice, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls. 
of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Worship is a matter of the heart. And we all express our heart differently. We all express our emotions differently. Some of us, we watch TV or movies or films and there is a moving or sad part and our eyes are filled with tears and the person sitting next to us is saying, why are you crying? It's not even real. Because we all express ourselves in different ways. So King David, as he experiences this incredible victory over the Philistines, he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, into Jerusalem. He's dancing and he's expressing that which is deep inside of him. And we read that David and all of the Israelites were celebrating with all of their might, with all of their emotion, with all of their heart, with all that they were before the Lord, with castanets and harps and lyres and trembles and sistrums. I don't even know what that is. And they're just, they're dancing. And David is wearing a linen ephod and there's shouts and trumpets. And as a result, he was judged quite deeply for his actions, not just by anyone, but by Michael, the daughter of Saul, his own wife. Now we can say, shame on you, Michael, for making that judgment, but you and I make judgments of the heart every single day. Many of us are so confident that we fully know the intentions of others. Most of the time, we're wrong. I've stood and looked out over you many times and I've seen people that look at me as I'm speaking with the stare of death as if I've offended them I look so angry and I'm like wow what did I do what did I say that made that person so mad only to be met in the lobby by that same person with tears in their eyes saying Pastor Mike that church service was so moving I thought really I thought you were going to commit murder I mean look (laughs) but we render judgments of the heart and often the judgments of the heart that we render are wrong David returns home and Michael, his wife, renders a verdict. She says, oh, how have you distinguished yourself going around half naked in view of the slave girls? In other words, Michael says to David, what's wrong with you? The truth is, nothing was wrong because only God truly knows the heart. If you flip a few pages to the book of 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 39, the writer says, for you, God, for you alone know every human heart. Solomon writes in the 21st Proverb, verse 2, a person may think their own ways are right, but it's the Lord who weighs the heart. Have you ever had someone try to weigh your heart, like make an assumption about you? I was, in a, I was in a worship service at a church in a different state, and I, you know, I'm not, <clears throat> during, like, during the singing time, I, like, I sing the words of the songs, and I believe them, and I, I, that's a form of worship for me, but like I said, I just I don't I'm not real. Usually when I worship, I'm standing like this, close my eyes and, and sing the songs to worship as of the songs of worship to God. Just I'm, I'm good. And this woman comes up to me and squeezes in between the aisles. I mean, you know how how much room there is in between the seats. She squeezes up in between, and now she's standing face to face with me. 
And like, if you know me, people I don't really know. I don't want you. I don't want. Be, I don't want you to touch me. Like that's close. Like that's that's like my wife close. I mean, so she's standing there, and I'm standing there like this, and I open my eyes, and there's this woman standing there, and she takes my arms, and she lifts them for me like this, because apparently I wasn't worshiping enough for her. Like it kind of made me mad because I'm like, who do you think you are? Making an assumption about what's coming out of my heart right now. David said to his wife, Michael, listen, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone. I will celebrate before the Lord and I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. See, see King David had this, this high view of who God was. Our view of who God is will impact the way that we worship. So if we view God simply as a judge that's waiting for us to mess up so he can come commence punishment on us, that will affect the way that we worship him. Or if we see God as like some old man, grandfather figure in the sky with a big beard and a big belly, kind of like Santa Claus... God doesn't really care what we do because God's love, it doesn't really matter. And, and, and that will affect the way that we worship. Or if we view God as some co- sort of historian who's remembering all the bad stuff that we've done and is keeping this record of all our horrible deeds, that will affect the way that we worship. I've spent so many years of my life seeing God as a judge waiting for me to screw up so he can punish me and that affected the way I worship God because it became a transaction and I did not worship God for who he was I worshiped because I was afraid of what would happen if I didn't David had an incredibly high view of God because he understood who God was and do we fully understand who our heavenly father is I mean we have ways to to at least catch glimpses of who he is if we're out in the world, out in nature, and we see creation, we see the glory of God. And of course, we have the scripture, which is why each year we, we publish those read through the Bible guides to help us read through the scripture to get the full scope of who God really is, because there are so many assumptions and opinions about who God is in Christian churches that don't actually line up with what the scripture says about him. David saw God as good, holy, just, merciful, good. He had such a high view of God that he did not care what others thought. He wanted to be authentic to his creator. And so he worshiped from a place of joy. But then sometime later, there's a second scenario that happens. King David is now established in Jerusalem. His army is off in battle. In the book of 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, the story starts with King David walking out on his roof in the evening. He's out for a stroll, maybe with his golden doodle, and he's just out there enjoying the cool of the evening. And out of the corner of the eye, he spies a woman naked bathing on her rooftop, and he says, wowzer. Now, King David is married, this woman is married, but he inquires of this woman, They bring her into his palace because no one says no to the king. He has an affair with her. She gets pregnant. David tries to cover it up by having her husband murdered, who's also one of his generals, which is a bizarre twist. It's like daytime soap opera. I mean, I love the Bible for how authentic it is, but we see a darker side of David. The child is born. The child dies. And now David has been called out by the prophet Samuel for his sins. 
And David finds himself in a dark, dark place. Moments ago, he was rejoicing over his his victory over the Philistines and the Ark of God being brought into the city of David in God's presence. And now he's in the deepest place of his despair and he's mourning and he's weeping and he's fasting. But then we read in chapter 12, verse 20, David gets up from the ground after he'd washed and put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped even in his darkest of moment, he made the decision to worship God. You see, worship is not a set time or an event. Worship is a lifestyle. David believed this so much that in the 34th Psalm, King David wrote, I will praise the Lord at all times. I will praise the Lord when I'm victorious in battle, and I will praise God when I'm in my darkest of moments. I will constantly sing his praises. Because worship is is not just a matter of circumstance or emotion. Worship is a matter of the heart, and we can choose whether we'll worship or not. I had my annual physical this last week, and before I go in for my physical, my doctor always does a panel of blood tests, and if your healthcare provider is like mine, all of my results are in my email days before my appointment. And I try not to look because if numbers are off, I freak out, I get anxious, I don't like medical stuff, and I work really hard not to look. But I looked. (laughs) And there were some numbers that were way off. And I got really nervous. I'm like, oh my gosh. And and in my mind, like when a number's off, that's it, it's over. I'm like, might as well just plan the funeral. So I'm nervous, so I go to my appointment on Monday, 10.30, and I'm, you know, like, what what was he gonna say? And I get into the waiting room, and you always have to wait, no matter what time your appointment is. And I sat there, and I would normally have just reached into my pocket and pulled out my phone to distract myself long enough to get in there. But instead, I left it in my pocket, and I decided to make the waiting room of my doctor's office a sanctuary. And I chose in those moments as I waited to worship. And then I was called in. I put on that awkward gown with the open back and I sat in the chair and left my phone in my pocket while I waited and I chose to make that small room a place of worship. Everything's fine, by the way. Thanks for asking. (laughs) Anywhere, any moment can become a sanctuary. There's a classic book written in the 17th century by a monk named Brother Lawrence called The Practice of the Presence of God. Brother Lawrence worked in a monastery, and while he wanted a more important duty, he was assigned the kitchen, and so he spent his days peeling potatoes, making soup, and sweeping the floor. But he wanted to worship, he wanted to have this ongoing sense of God's presence, and though he did not have a higher duty like some of the monks, he chose to make all of life and all of work an act of worship. And so as he peeled potatoes, as he swept the floor, he allowed those moments to be Worship unto his God. So whether you're in a grand cathedral, or if you're in your child's room changing their diaper, or working on plumbing, or fixing a car, all of it can be worship unto God. When you walk into your office on Monday morning, or drive up to your job site, or get the kids ready for the school day, you can create moments of worship, because anywhere it can become a sanctuary. 
as you pull up to your place of employment, what if you spent three minutes in your car before you got out and allowed your car to become the greatest cathedral you've ever known? Not because your car was nice, but because God's presence was there. I want to conclude with a story I've told before, but I'll tell it again because when something impacts you so deeply, you can't help but talk about it. Many of you remember three years ago when my wife got very ill. She was bedridden for six months, couldn't do anything. It was a very, very scary time for us. I had never been anything quite like through that, quite like anything like that before. And if you've ever spent time as a caregiver, you know it can be very taxing. And not only was I tired, but I was getting frustrated because, I mean, I'm fairly young and I have these two kids and and I'm everything. I'm the mom, the dad, I'm the husband, I'm the wife, I'm the cook, I'm the Uber driver, I'm doing everything. And oh, by the way, I'm trying to work my normal job. And it just became a lot. And I got overwhelmed and I kind of felt sorry for myself, which is not something I like to do, but I did, if I'm being honest. And I was just frustrated and I was starting to get angry and I'm doing everything and I'm just tired and frustrated. And I come into the office one day and I'd had a particularly rough week and I'm just mad. I'm like, I'm sick of all this. I don't deserve this. Why is this happening to me? I'm God's man. And I sat down in one of the offices of one of our pastors and I'm just complaining and I'm moaning and I'm whining about how hard it is and how hard life is. And he listens very kindly and finally when I'm done, he looks me in the eye and he goes, you know, instead of complaining about it, what if you just chose to make all of those actions an act of worship? What if you served your family as an act of worship to God? I helped him up off the ground <laughs> after that. I didn't. I didn't do that. I said, I'll think about it. And I went home that evening and the dishes were everywhere because my kids are slobs and I just, I start doing the dishes and I'm loading the dishwasher and I said, okay, God, I'm, this is an act of worship unto you. And as I'm loading the dishwasher, something starts to change. I can't explain it, and I'm not making it up, and I'm not embellishing. That evening, I went and picked up my son Ryan from football practice. I said, God, this is an act of worship unto you. I'm serving my family. And something began to change. That evening, I went home, and I cooked dinner, which is a unique disaster all its own. And I said, I... I'm doing this unto the Lord. I'm doing this to you, God, as an act of worship. And something changed. And day after day, I did that. And something changed. And it went from being a drudgery to a joy because I was doing it unto the Lord. And I, I, and I again, no embellishment to this day as I do work in my home. I offer it up to God and it is actually a joy as I do it to him because I'm serving my family as an act of worship. See, we got to move beyond the music. Because worship isn't music. We can sing songs to God as an act of worship, but worship is a matter of the heart. And every heart can make a choice to worship in the good and in the bad. So as we wrap up today, I just want us to take a minute. We've got plenty of time. I just want us to, to be together just in quiet and silent, something that we don't get very often. And as we sit together just silently for just a moment, I want us to examine our heart. Because if worship is a matter of the heart, then let's, let's check where our heart is. And let's, go, let's invite God into this place. Let's invite God into the sanctuary of our soul.